0: Welcome to First Do No Harm, with Massachusetts Citizens for Life board member and physician, Dr. Mark Rollo. This broadcast will focus on medical ethics from a Catholic perspective and address abortion, physician-assisted suicide, contraception, natural family planning, IVF, healthcare proxy, and other topics. Please be advised that this show may not be appropriate for children under 13.
1: Hello and welcome back to First Do No Harm, a show about medical ethics from a Catholic perspective. I'm Dr. Mark Rollo. The last three shows focused on my interview with Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse, economics professor, author, and founder of the Ruth Institute, a nonprofit organization created to expose and address the lies and social destruction created by the sexual revolution over the last 50 years. Her website is ruthinstitute.org. And her most recent book is entitled The Sexual State, How Elite Ideologies Are Destroying Lives and Why the Church Was Right All Along. The elite ideologies to which Dr. Morris refers in her book are the contraception ideology, the divorce ideology, and the gender ideology. We spent a lot of time discussing these ideologies and how the sexual revolution helped bring them about. Sex without babies ultimately led to babies without sex. And so gender became irrelevant in the worldview of the cultural elites. They have declared gender to be fluid and therefore can mean anything you want it to mean. Because gender can mean anything or nothing, confusion reigns. Today we will begin an in-depth discussion of gender ideology and how it is destroying lives and how the church's vision of sexuality is the only rational and workable vision to produce human flourishing. Before we continue, let us pray. For as stated by the U.S. Catholic bishops, only with prayer. Prayer that storms the heavens for justice and mercy. Prayer that cleanses our hearts and souls. Will the culture of death that surrounds us today be replaced with a culture of life? Most Reverend Robert J. Carlson, Archbishop of St. Louis, in a wonderful document regarding gender ideology called Compassion and Challenge, had this to say, If you're uncomfortable with your biological sex, or if you consider yourself as having gender identity at odds with your biological sex, here's the first thing I want you to know. God loves you. He loves you right where you are. He has a plan for you. Archbishop Carlson also quotes 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, which says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. O God, help us to always speak your truth which is the truth, with compassion and love. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now here is part one of my recent conversation with Dr. Joseph Zalot, Z-A-L-O-T, of the National Catholic Bioethics Center as we discuss gender ideology. Joining me now is Dr. Joseph Zalat, PhD. Dr. Zalat is a staff ethicist at the National Catholic Bioethics Center based in Philadelphia. Prior to joining the NCBC, he served as Regional Director of Ethics and Spiritual Care for Mercy Health in Cincinnati. In this role, he chaired the regional ethics committee, offered ethics consultations for both patients and staff, reviewed and drafted ethics policies, started a nurse ethics education program, and during this time, he also served as a lecturer at the uh, Athenaeum. I think I said that right. Of uh, I'm not sure what it is, but maybe you can tell us later. <laughs> <laughs> Will do. Um, that's in uh, Ohio, at the Mount St. Mary's Seminary, where he taught uh, courses in medical ethics and morality and justice in Catholic life. Prior to that, Dr. Zalot was professor of religious studies at Mount St. Joseph University in Cincinnati, where he taught courses in health care, ethics, business ethics, sexual and reproductive ethics, introduction to Catholic theology, and marriage. He also taught student travel courses to Rome that integrated the Catholic faith with uh, both history and art. That, that's a very uh, eclectic <laughs> uh, different topics that you have. Dr. Zalot earned his uh, PhD from Marquette University in 2002, a master's in education from Boston College in 1997, a master's from Springfield College in 1991, so as you can tell he's very familiar with Massachusetts, and uh, a bachelor's from St. Anselm College in 1989. He's authored two books along with numerous articles and book chapters and has presented at academic conferences both domestically and internationally. So welcome Joe, thanks, uh, thanks for taking the time to be with me today.
0: Well thanks Mark, thanks for uh... the the introduction, and yeah, my my wife and I are both from Massachusetts originally, and although we're living down in the Philadelphia area, we still have uh, family in, you know, all around New England and uh, in New York.
1: Well, great. As a matter of fact, um, uh, we met um, recently down in the Philadelphia. I was attending one of the National Catholic Bioethics uh, uh, Center uh, courses, which was a very, very good course. And by the way, before I forget, what is the Athenaeum? (laughs)
0: Well, the Athenaeum of Ohio and Mount Saint Mary Seminary—it's kind of one and the same. It's it's the seminary for the Archdiocese of Cincinnati.
1: Okay, I never heard the term Athenaeum before.
0: Yeah, there's a few around. There's Athenaeum of. um, I think oh, there's a couple of other ones. Mm -hmm. I I I probably messed them up, so I won't say anything else. (laughs) But but the the term is uh, it's used. Yeah, it's Mount Saint Mary Seminary. Just go with that. That's
1: yeah, yeah. That's that's easy to understand. So, um, one of the books to which you made uh, chapter contributions is titled "Transgender Issues in Catholic Healthcare." So this this caught my attention because uh, you hear you hear this more and more discussion about gender identity and transgender issues, right. and I've had a uh, I have to admit I have a really uh, hard time wrapping my head around the uh, whole ideology and why now and and what is all this stuff so i know that's kind of a i won't say specialty but that's kind of a a focus uh, one of the foci that you have (laughs) and so so um it's great to be able to talk with you but before we launch into that can you tell our listeners a little bit about the um, national catholic bioethics center
0: yeah, well, the, the National Catholic Bioethics Center, or the NCBC, as we're called, was um, founded back in 1972. So we are into our 50th anniversary year. Oh yes, that's this right. Year. And basically, the, the the NCBC, in short, it's a it's a Catholic medical ethics think tank. Um, so our our primary we have probably three primary things that we do. One is education, uh, one is publication, and one is consultation. Mm-hmm. So we uh, we offer. You know, educational programs, and you know, we, we travel around the country and speak um, when invited. Um, publications, we have a, a quarterly journal, mm-hmm. we've got a, a monthly newsletter, and we also are um, starting to publish more and more, which I really like are kind of guides. Yes. As to, you know, for ethical decision making. So, we yes. End of Life, we've got a Palliative Care and Hospice Guide, and others. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're available on our website. And then the third thing is, is consultation. And mm-hmm. for your listeners, uh, probably the biggest thing is that we have a 24-hour, 24-7, 365-day-a-year uh, consult line where people can call in, either call or email us. And someone is available 24 hours a day. And um, people ask us. Questions and believe me, we we get the gambit from beginning of life to end of life questions. And and actually, to be honest with you, that the consultation service is is probably it's probably one of my favorite things that I do. Mm. Because you're actually you know you're really dealing with people one on one and hopefully, (laughs) hopefully, uh, helping them to come to good moral decisions when it comes to decision making for either for themselves or for their loved
1: ones. Well, I have to say that I've taken advantage of uh, all your services. I. I get your newsletter and the quarterly, and I always read the uh, the nice, you know, brief statements that you sent out on ethical issue or another. Right. And uh, I just finished a course down there, as I alluded to, which was a one-year certification course in uh, bioethics, and that was very informative and a good experience. And I and I also took advantage of the uh, consultation. I I happened to be. Um, I was the uh, healthcare proxy for my cousin, yep. who had no other family around. Uh, his parents were both deceased, and he, he had one sibling who wasn't really able to provide that function. So I did, and he was younger than I. He was only um, in his 50s when he passed away. He had very bad, uh, very advanced uh, Parkinson's disease. And one day, when he, w- he ultimately had to go to a nursing home, and in the nursing home he just collapsed and had a cardiac arrest and had to be resuscitated and sent to the hospital and uh but he was anoxic uh for a while and so he had severe brain damage and so I was really, you know, and I'm not unfamiliar with you know, medical well, I'm or a doctor. <laughs> Yeah, I <mean>. that's right. <laughs> I you know, I really you know, I am a I am a doctor and uh I am an, familiar with some of these ethical issues about end of life care, but I was also his cousin. I wanted to make sure that I did the right thing. And uh, so I called and I said, well, here's, here's a situation. Here's kind of what I think, you know, my main issue was, should we remove him from um, life support? Because after a few days, it was clear that, that he had um, irreversible brain damage. And so we, and that any kind of continued keeping him on a on a, a ventilator would be right. you know extraordinary care. So uh so we ultimately decided to um remove him from from life support. But it was a, a real comfort to me just to have somebody familiar with these issues to um to go over them. So I would I would encourage everybody to go to N C B dot org. So N C B org and uh, take advantage of this uh, of all the services, so, um, so
0: in light of what you just said mark I, if I could just yeah if I could just sure jump on, um, the situation that you just described that end of life situation it 's actually kind of a common um, call or email that we get actually usually a, a withdrawal of care is going to be a phone call because yeah. you know, there's, there's nuances and stuff to do, but what i found found and you know i 've been here at the ncBC it 'll be five years in um, July of, you know, coming up July of 2022, and you know we, we track our consults. I've done probably about 1,800 consults. Wow. Right now, which That's is amazing. a lot. Yeah. And what I found is that particularly at end of life, and it's really actually quite heartening, is that people call up, and kind of as you said, that they, they have a good idea of, their moral intuition is correct mm-hmm. in terms of what to do, but what they need is or what they want is kind of an impartial person exactly. to, to talk it out with, and you know I, and I think it really helps. I mean, it helps me. You know, when you're making a decision to kind of talk things out with someone, particularly someone who's not, you know, not closely related exactly. to the situation. Right. Um, and, I, and that's what I found. And it, it's really, as I said, it's that's one of the reasons why the consults are my favorite thing, or one of my favorite things to do, because you know you, you really you do get the sense that you're helping people uh, even if it's just listening to to
1: what they say yeah that's it's very very valuable it was very uh, reassuring to me so um gender identity (laughs) 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 so this, this this movement uh seems to have come out of the blue just in the last you know decade or so right and I recently uh, interviewed Dr. Jennifer Roback Morris, I'm not sure if you're familiar with her or not. I'm
0: very familiar, I've, I've met her, and uh, she actually, when I was at, in Cincinnati, she actually came to uh, one of my classes one time, she oh. was a guest college. Oh really? College.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I thought that uh, considering the issues she addressed that you may have uh, come across her. Oh yeah. Um, and uh, her most recent book, called The Sexual State, just really kind of grabbed my attention, so the full title. Of her book uh, is the the sexual state, how elite ideologies are destroying lives, and why the church was right all along. And uh, I said, "Well, that's the, that sounds like <laughs> that sounds like something I want to read." So, and in the book, she she contends that far from coming out of the blue, gender ideology has been deliberately created by elites with the effort to harness the power of the state to promote three false ideologies and she mentions that these three ideologies are the contraception ideology the divorce ideology and then finally gender ideology and she said that this was you know all planned all part of the sexual revolution of the 1960s and and uh uh, as a baby boomer like she is, I, I I said to her, I said, "Gee, I thought that was all spontaneous, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I thought it was just part of sex, drugs, and rock and roll." She said, "No, this was planned by the uh, cultural uh, elites." And uh, so I wondered what what you thought. Do you kind of agree with this assessment that it was kind of set up by the cultural elites, or or how how do you approach this? I, well, what you know? To what do you uh, attribute the emergence of this gender identity movement?
0: Yeah, I think um, I, I think Jennifer um, has a lot of uh, good things to say. I, I would like to say, just as a as a quick disclaimer before we get going, I just I just want to let listeners, your listeners, know, Mark, that I, I'm guessing from where you know the questions that you sent me, where this is going, I'm going to be pretty critical gender ideology and, and today's medically accepted interventions for, for gender dysphoria and stuff. But I want to make very clear that anything that I say that's critical is not aimed at people who are suffering from, yes, um, you know, gender identity, what used to be termed gender identity disorder and right. been morphed into gender dysphoria. And I guess we'll probably talk about that. But my critique is really for those who advocate for this and those who, you know, provide so-called transitioning interventions. So I, I just want to say that up front.
1: Yeah, I'm really glad you did.
0: To, yeah. to get the wrong impression about this. Um, going back to your question about, you know, Jennifer's book, I, I would agree with her um, mm-hmm. that gender ideology didn't come out of the blue, so to speak. Although I, I don't know, and I, I, I don't know enough of the history. I'm not sh- I don't know if it was the creation of the state as much as maybe the state has been co-opted by what we might call the sexual left. And, you know, we, we could argue that point, or, or Jennifer and I could discuss that point. But you know I, I you know where it came from was it planned i don't know yeah. it, it may it may have been uh i am not i don't know that for sure mm-hmm. um if i could give a a plug for our for our own podcast we have a, a bioethics on air podcast and we did we did a pod, a series of podcasts actually with Mary Rice hassan it's if you go to our website it's episode 63 to 66 mm-hmm. and mary mary rice Hassan with the ethics public policy center she did a wonderful kind of history of where did this whole gender ideology movement come mm-hmm. from, starting with John Money back in the 1950s, um, and all of that. And all of these things are, are intertwined. You know, certainly the, uh, you know, as, as you mentioned in here, the various ideologies, the, the contraception ideology, the divorce ideology. One you didn't mention, I don't know if Jennifer talked about it, or I'm sure she probably did, would be the, um, the homosexual uh, ideology. Okay. Yeah. And how that plays in and that goes into gender ideology. Yeah. 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 Um, So that's another thing. But, um, but I, I, you know, in response to the question, how do I explain the emergence of the gender identity Mm -hmm. movement? I I think that gender ideology and, and the gender identity movement, as you say, were really kind of the next logical step, so to speak, in the progression of the sexual left. You know, the contraception in the 60s and 70s, that dismissed the idea, quote unquote, dismissed the idea that sex is procreative. And then marriage right after that, it's like, well, we don't need marriage anymore. Yeah. And then, you know, I remember growing up, uh, really kind of coming of age, so to speak, in the 80s and 90s. And, and you can see the trajectory of, you know, the, the, the cause of the sexual left there became, you know, acceptance of homosexual acts and mm-hmm. redefinition of marriage to include people of the same sex. And then once that the movement got its victory in 2015 with the Obergefell decision at the U.S. Supreme Court that said same sex there's no such thing as same sex marriage, you know, right. that they defined it in federal. They said you have a constitutional right. Well, what's the next step? Well, it's gender ideology, uh, and so th- that's kind of how I see it. Now, was it planned? Maybe, <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe it was. Yeah.
0: Uh, but 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 I kind of see that as that as that. Uh, you know that next step, and you, you also mentioned um, there was something that that caught my eye. Um, you know, using the using the state and the power of the state. I think it's really important for people to to realize that the gender ideology um, and the whole gender identity movement, as you said, really rely on power. They rely yeah. on the coercive role of the state. Um, and I heard somebody say one time, and I I really thought this was great. The more nonsensical something is. <laughs> the more it needs the coercive power of the state to yeah. enforce it. Yes. So we don't need the state, you know, and the state here meaning government, whatever that means, whether right. it's the federal government, whether it's the state of Massachusetts, whether it's a local ordinance, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. We don't need the state telling us that there are males and there are females. Mm-hmm. There are two sexes. We don't need that. Right. But what do we need the coercive power of the state to do? Well, to, inf- to enforce, to impose and enforce Gender
1: ideology. Yeah, I know. I um, uh, my my first uh, awareness of this, uh, the whole gender identity movement. I was sitting in my office one day, and my my colleague uh, came marching down the hall as she as she often did, and actually she she herself is a uh, uh, Polish, and so Hey, I'm
0: Polish. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, like there you already.
1: go. Yeah. So she said, Mark, I have to ask you something. And uh, so I said, okay. So she said, I have this patient who went to Boston to have gender transition. And uh, they the Boston doctor called me, and he wants me to follow hormone levels as she gets injections in Boston. And, and this kind of, you know, blew her mind and it yep. blew my mind too. And, of course, it raises a whole bunch of ethical issues about the... The act itself and then sure. you know cooperating as a doctor with this kind of thing and it like i said it, um, uh, or like you were mentioning the more absurd something is the more you need the power of the state to enforce it and uh but to me you know it just seemed like uh, child abuse so that was my first awareness did you was there a moment in time uh where you first became aware of this yourself
0: well, I, I guess, uh, first off, I would say, I, I would just, to coin to a term, affirm um, what you say that, you know, the so-called transitioning in minors is child abuse.
1: Yeah. It is. Mm-hmm. It, it
0: absolutely is. And in fact, we're. what's the date today? Today's, I think, the 4th of March as we're mm-hmm. recording this. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, I think it was the 18th of February, the state of Texas, uh, Governor Greg Abbott and his Attorney General Ken Paxton essentially declared that, quote-unquote, transitioning of minors Constitutes child abuse under Texas.
1: All oh, right, I did see that. Yeah. yeah,
0: and so you know we're we're starting slowly, slowly starting to see um, starting to see people recognize this. Uh, when did my first awareness of gender ideology? I guess I guess this would have to go back a number of years. I don't know exactly when it was, but I remember you know, I first started hearing about so-called sex change operations that right. were happening um, in the 1970s, but they stopped relatively quickly because. You know when they when the and I believe it was um, mostly down at uh, Johns Hopkins uh, in Baltimore and a uh, psychiatrist paul mcHugh um, would, were f- was following up with people and and found that you know going through this so called transitioning didn 't really do anything mm-hmm. it didn't it didn 't address any of the underlying problems, so I knew that um, but in terms of just this explosion of gender ideology right. uh, it really hit me I, I remember um, I have a vivid memory of sitting in a car listening to the radio. I was at a, a traffic intersection in East Hampton, Massachusetts. Oh, really? So, I used yep. to live there. <laughs> yeah, right. Right in the center of town, right where Route 10 and Route 141 meet. Oh, yeah. Um,. And I was, listen, I was listening to something on the radio. And this was in the weeks just following the Obergefell decision. Mm-hmm. And it, it became very clear that, you know, that the news reporters, and it was, I think this was the national news report, it became very clear that this was the next cause. This is the next place we're going. All right, mm-hmm. So marriage has been redefined. What's now? Okay, now we're going this whole transgender thing. And that's when it really hit me. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if you want to say, you know, when did the the hammer hit me upside the head? Probably, well, Obergefell was the end of June of of 2015, so probably sometime in July.
1: Yeah, could you you explain that, the uh, Obergefell uh, uh, decision?
0: Yeah, Obergefell, that's the decision where the U.S. Supreme Court determined that uh, essentially laws... That defined marriage as being between one man and one woman mm-hmm. were unconstitutional. It came out of, in fact, it came out of um, the case Obergefell uh, from Cincinnati, where I was living at the time. Oh. There were two men. They wanted to, quote-unquote, marry. Mm-hmm. And they weren't allowed to under the, the laws of the uh, the state of Ohio. And they sued. And, and the interesting thing is, in states had constitutional um Amendments saying marriage was one man, one woman. Mm-hmm. Um, every place it ever went for a vote, even in California, mm. uh, this went up for a vote to change the state constitution, and in every state it was turned down. Yeah, and the Supreme Court, very similar to Roe v. Wade, Supreme Court just just
1: just threw it out. Yeah, yeah,
0: just well, they just imposed their understanding of. You know, abortion on the country in Roe, they did the exact same thing essentially with the Obergefell decision. Yeah, and this isn't the will of the people. Nobody ever voted this in.
1: No. Yeah. Well, um, but Doctor. Who post- uh, imposed it? I remember. Doctor it reminds me. Doctor Morris was talking about Proposition Eight in California, mm-hmm. which she worked on to to try to get the state to say marriages between a man and a woman, and they were successful. Exactly. And then. Just a few years later, the court said, "Nah, that's that's uh we can't have that," um, yep. you know. Same, and then that's how same-sex marriage got uh, ushered in. Just like you said, uh, uh, the same thing occurred with uh, Roe v. Wade, which hopefully will get um, tossed this summer. But I guess we'll stay tuned for that. But yeah, we'll find out. This concludes part one of my conversation with Dr. Joseph Zalat, staff ethicist of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. Please visit their website at ncbcenter.org for very valuable information regarding gender ideology, as well as great information on a whole host of ethical issues on various healthcare topics. And tune in next time when we will delve further into the dangerous and destructive effects of gender ideology. Until next time, remember, we should always treat life with care and respect. And at the very least, we should first do no harm. First do no harm with Dr. Mark Rolo is produced at WQPH 89.3 FM, Shirley Fitchburg. We are very happy to share it with other networks. Thank you
0: for tuning in to First Do No Harm. Dr. Rolo welcomes your questions and comments. You may contact him at markrollo 978 at gmail.com. That's M A R K R O L O 978 at gmail.com. Thank you, and until next week, remember first, do no harm.